Hey there, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Sean Johnson. You're listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader, on which we are discussing Daniel Nyeri's Everything Sad is Untrue, parentheses, a, a true story, close parentheses, the, I discovered, latest ever published book that we've ever done on Close Reads. I oh, believe it came out after the Netanyahu's, technically. Oh, I believe. But I was a little confused about when the Netanyahu's was actually published, so that could be totally wrong. It was like a little hard for me to figure that out in five minutes. Yeah, Sean's back. Sean, how's it going? It's been a few minutes. If if people haven't been listening to the episodes on the Ransom Trilogy, first of all, question mark. Second of all, it's been a minute minute since they heard from you. uh, In a minute. Yeah, let the people know how you're doing. I'm doing great. Excellent. There you go, people. Yep, soak it up. <laughs> the uh I got to see you guys. I know. Week before last. Right? That was pretty yeah. good. Yeah, when we got David to see that said baby. you're back, I was like, what? I just saw him. Where'd he go? Yeah. Just spent a week with yeah. <laughs> but I guess you have to come to the Close Reads Mountain retreat um in order to really get to know Sean. That's right. Because yeah, I feel right. like your your answer to David's question was disappointingly brief. <laughs> and did you see gossip, Sean? No? Oh man, uh, I got nothing. All yeah. right, that's good. Yeah. That's a good thing. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah, Sean. Yeah. Sean's gonna it's maintain a... his status as an as an enigma. He is. He's like yeah, a man right. of mystery. Yeah. I used to think that's it was right. David, uh-huh. but now it's Sean. <laughs> <laughs> I've been around too long. Well, we are we are here to discuss everything sad isn't true. But before we do that, Heidi, you have to tell us about your dog oh, because you returned home from the retreat a couple weeks ago. I did, and was surprised with. A puppy. Yeah. So three questions. Three questions. Mm-hmm. Why did they get you a dog? Why did your family get you a yeah. dog? Two. Yeah. How did you feel about this? Yeah. And were you surprised? And three. How is the dog, and how are you in the wake of the dog's arrival? Those are all really good questions. And you, as you know from the video I sent you, I was indeed surprised. Yeah, you had your um, eyes said covered that like <laughs> a thousand times in the video. I'm so surprised. I've been saying I wanted this. <laughs> kind of designer dog for a little <laughs> while this is uh she is a cavalier king charles spaniel which go ahead and google it these are the cutest it's a beautiful dogs dog. on they're the like the original designer Earth. dogs they are yeah, yes right. cavalier yeah. king charles they were during the decadent reign of king charles who was eventually you know murdered and all that but yeah, he right. it's yeah, not because of the dogs though no, the dogs didn't do the murder to do with the dog but this from that time in the mid 1600s, as you all know, if you read David's uh, book recommendation, The Blazing World, which I am listening to on Audible right now, PSA, it's very good. Um, anyway, King Charles had one of these dogs and became known as the English like aristocracy dog. And mm. I discovered this <laughs> in the course are. of my researches on English history and was like, those are the cutest dogs on the face of the earth. Please someday buy me one like someday when we're retired and 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 have all this time to take care of puppies we already have a black lab because we live in the country and she chases away the varmints but anyway for my birthday but you need your, that's your working dog you need your yeah. your read neck sit on the couch while you're reading dog yes this is my lap dog i've never had a little dog before and she is so cute she's nine weeks old she's completely adorable i'll post some pictures of her her name is penelope and we call her penny Uh, Mm. and this is nice for me because in the latest like since we live on property we have a lot of animal drama around here and the latest thing that happened is that two of our chickens died in the last couple of days and we don't Mm. know why and then the other so I get this text from my daughter. I was out in North Carolina for an, for a fundraising event. And my daughter texts me and is like, is it okay that the other chickens are eating her? Like the first one that died. And I'm like, yeah, it's fine. That's why it's called pecking order. It's just you're know, like a chicken eat chicken world out there. The so like, chickens yeah. are weird. <laughs> So the fact that I have this tiny little adorable lap dog, I feel like she might get eaten by like a great horned owl or a fox or something, but she's very, very adorable. And this is a new kind of animal husbandry for me. It's a new <laughs> world. And I love so, it. One of the things that I discovered um, through Bethany's art studies, you know, she's working on these lumen guides. Mm. And when we were in England, we went to a couple of museums 
And so I've been paying attention to things in art that I never, and then discovering artworks that I never had discovered before. And one of the things that I discovered is that in a lot of paintings from the 17th century on, particularly the Dutch paintings and the English paintings and the French paintings, you get a lot of them have dogs in them. And the two most commonly painted dogs are the King Charles and the Brittany Spaniel. And the King Charles would be the... I have a Brittany, yeah. Yeah. And the King... So the King Charles is always in like, you know, in paintings alongside people who have robes on and their wigs powdered. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And the Brittany was called a peasant dog because they would, in France, they bred them to basically be poachers because the poor people would be restricted on what land they could hunt on. So they needed a dog that could get in and out of the brush and help them mm. get birds and things like that. And so they started calling it a peasant dog. So you'll see Britneys oftentimes in paintings of peasants. So it's appropriate that you have a regal dog and I have a peasant dog. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know. Mm-hmm. The The only thing I'm hearing from that is you have a useful dog and I have a toy. <laughs> Well, you but have I'm okay a lab with too, that because so. yesterday I literally fished a chicken body out of the out of the water in our little like pool tub over in the corner mm. of our chicken coop for the ducks because mm. we have chickens and ducks, and mm. they something we don't know what somehow the chicken carcass was put into the tub by something. And Sean. I had to get this waterlogged chicken carcass out mm. and put it in a plastic bag and drive it to a dumpster. What kind of odds would you give me that it was actually the King Charles that did this? Because the King Charles shows up, the chicken Uh dies. I don't know. Uh Cause and effect here. Could it be suicide? Do chickens commit suicide? Well, Mm, just walk itself right into the duck pond. I feel like this one. This This conversation is is going on a long time. (laughs) I feel like we should make the transition here, but I'm going to do some research into chicken suicide. I mean, it's like Ophelia, right? Maybe he, he read Hamlet. Did you read Hamlet out loud near a window? Nice transition mm, to literature. Yeah. That was mm-hmm, good, yeah, Sean. Yeah, that's right. Should we should we not ask Sean to talk about how he only has one dog in the world that he wants? <laughs> but it would be a perfect, his wife. It'd be his wife wants here. all other dogs in the world yeah. except that one, oh, and man. therefore they don't have a dog. Oh, that's um, really, wow! It's this is also a it's also a designer British breed with a storied history. What is it? Look at us. Now you have to say it. <laughs> I want an English bulldog. Oh, those are oh, lovely little dogs. Right? They're so cute. They drool yes. a lot. I don't and care. And your wife wants so your wife wants everything. My wife but, wants everything but an English bulldog. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I want only an English bulldog. But this is working for me so far because I really five kids is you enough. Have five kids. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I can uh, I can wait on the dog a little longer. It's but see the thing, well, I've got four kids, two dogs and two cats. Oh, and man. like the kids like kind of it all just becomes one big tussle. Yeah. Um, kind of, so it kind of works out. Speaking of, um, one, the stories we tell tussle, ourselves, the, the stories we tell ourselves. Yeah. Right, right, uh, right, everything yeah. sad is untrue. Yeah. Um, uh, Daniel Nyeri, this is a book that came out in 2020 and I would, I just want to give a little, uh, pitch for two conversations that Graham Pittman and I had with Daniel Nyeri over on the Withy Window podcast that we do for kids because Daniel Nyeri, is one of the nicest and funniest people I've ever interviewed. Um, he was a pastry chef. He's he's just a really interesting, really funny guy with who's a great storyteller. Obviously, so if you want to learn more about him and get it, get his vibe, uh, go listen to those conversations. And I'm hopeful that we'll be able to do some more content with him. Maybe even get him to come on this show sometime over the next month if we can get the scheduling. Right. Man, but um, I just want to I want to ask you guys this okay so Heidi you've read this before yes and Sean you have not not. okay so I want to start with you because in some ways this is well let me just ask you this how is it what's your response to it I mean what did you know about it what's been the experience like you know I diving in I I knew very little about it going into the book save that a lot of people I know have read it and really enjoyed it. So I've heard a lot of glowing praise. I did not, uh, maybe it was one of those things where I knew early on we were gonna do the book on the show. And so I saved it. I've owned it for a long time and not read it. And I've also maybe tried to avoid talking or hearing too much about the content of the book so mm. that it would be you know, just a fresh surprise. But uh, I, I don't, I'm a third of the way in now and I don't know what to make of it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm really enjoying it, but I 
So I had to, well, I bought this book at a bookstore. This is just a shout out to bookstores. <laughs> if you know, shout out to bookstores. If, Thank if you. If you know of any bookstores, go to them and buy books. And I had to buy it in the children's section because it's a, mm-hmm. uh, but this is a young adult book novel. I think it's typically thought of as like an older middle, middle grade. grade. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but so far, and this is not a critical or negative judgment. So far, I'm really on the fence about whether I would want my kids to read it. Not because it's uh, not excellent, but because it's crushing. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's it's very much a kind of, I don't know if gallows humor is the right term exactly, but uh, it's very funny. There's a lot of humor, but it's humor in the face of uh, some really frank depictions of suffering and uh, evil even. And so I'm not quite mm-hmm. sure what to do with the book or how to categorize it. Uh, and I'm just really eager and interested and, and curious and hopeful about where it's going, but I don't, I don't know where that is yet. Heidi, what advice would you give to Sean as he wades through Daniel Nairi's He is right. Like this fictional is, life. It's such an intense book about childhood suffering. Like it is very, it's a very deep book. Um, and I, I, the, I listened to it with Lucy uh, mm. last year and it was, and it's read by guys, Nairi. Yeah. Um, and if you remember, it was my number one book of last mm-hmm. year. I love this book. I'm absolutely crazy about this book. I think it's amazing. Um, this is actually the first time I read it because I've now listened to it twice. Mm. Um, and it is a different experience reading it than listening to it. I highly recommend the audiobook. It's very good because it um it yeah, captures good. his very conversational and storytelling style. Um, the fragments the sentence fragments feel very natural being read a little bit more, excuse me, being read aloud. Um, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so I just totally I agree. Love the, uh, I love this book as an audio book. I would even recommend bouncing back and forth a little. Agreed. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. But it is, I remember listening to it with Lucy and she's, she's 14 and thinking, I might have to have some follow-up conversations <laughs> about the depth of this pain, this boy's pain yeah. that's being talked about um, in this book. And he's being so frank about it. Like you said, I like that word. Um, and, and, and so I, I would not hand, I would not hand a 10 year old this book without talking about it. I think it would be very fruitful dialogue, um, but it, it should be read in with, from a child, a child should read this with some navigation, I think. Yeah. I mean, it reads like stories that are passed down, right? You know, it Mm. reads like there's an oral tradition element to it and it's hard to know where his story ends and the fiction begins and then interwoven through all that is what we know to be fiction. Um, All these Persian folk tales and fairy tales and legends and um and uh, even almost odes in a way um so what i what i'm curious about as we start is through the first third of the book very little relatively speaking actually covers his story you know i mean we we get bits and pieces of it we get you know, he, little things here and there about his school and the bullies and the girl that he likes and stories of talking to his phone on the dad, but or talking on the phone to his dad. But then most of it is him telling stories that may or may not be true about his ancestors and famous Persian stories and folk tales and all those kind of things, fables even. So what I'm curious about is how do you think he wants us to think about his story? Um, how do you think another way of just asking this Heidi is how do you think he wants us to read this book based on what he's given us which is I guess the sort of question we always need to ask every book but he's dealing in so many different um, storytelling traditions and so many different techniques that I think it raises the question extra so if you will yeah Uh, I, I really love that question a lot so this 
part of the story. Uh, I think this is a book about the stories that we tell ourselves. I think it's a book about the making of a soul and the, the way that the stories that we tell ourselves and the stories we are told and the interweaving, I really like you just use that word interweaving, David. I love that word. Uh, I think he's throwing out threads and he's referenced mm, Persian mm-hmm. rugs many times mm-hmm. already. Like pay that is speaking the of Penelope. Thing. Yes, exactly. Yes. And weaving we, the and so story forth. of weaving. Um, one of the only things he remembers about his grandmother is her weaving, right? Like that that there's there's many references to rugs already. Um, and so keep that in mind. And so I think for for people who might be looking for more of a cohesive linear plot you might be disappointed until you think of this as multiple strands being woven into a picture that's going to come into focus and we're going to be able to see why what all these threads are making um Mm. as we get further into the novel but that's what he's doing i think right now throwing out threads images descriptions um memories stories uh Almost aphorisms, you know, yes, proverbs. Exactly. Yes. And then when he says that beautiful line that probably stands out to everybody and ought to, when he says, just like Shahrazadi, a storyteller is always telling a story to save their own life. That I think is the picture that he's giving us. That's what he's going to weave yep. here is, is the salvation of his life through all of these stories. And but in order to get there, you have to endure with him. But what do you mean by endure? Endure the trauma? Hard. Yeah, endure yeah. the sadness, endure his personal grief and the grief of all of these other characters that are populating his imagination and memory that are bearing mm. the weight in some way of his own grief and he's entering into theirs. It's this shared experience of love and grief that is being woven. Like it's just so... I need to stop rhapsodizing it's, <laughs> I, it, and just let it tell its own yeah. story. <laughs> but yeah. Sean, do you, you said you're not really sure how to make, what to make of it. Is the, is the cohesive forward motion narrative difficult to like, not difficult. I mean, you're a good reader, huh. but is that the thing that's kind of like tripping you up or is this? No, it's is really it, just, it's the, when I said that, I meant more the experience of reading it, uh, the emotional experience of reading it. Uh, I I get uh, the format, okay. and yeah. I, I like it a lot. Uh, I, when you asked that question, I immediately thought of the same line that Heidi mentioned, that, that every story is the sound of a storyteller begging to stay alive. Uh, and it's almost like uh, he also, one of the things he comes back to, uh, along with the the rugs, in fact, I guess the uh, they even come together early in the story uh, is these rituals of hospitality where someone approaches mm-hmm. and engages and then there's a, a back and forth uh, and you sort of you give and you offer and you receive and uh, you demure and uh, you're offered in return. And uh, it feels like the whole <laughs> reading of this book is that kind of ritual where he is slowly offering mm. us his own story, but it is coming through uh, this storyteller's dance where you have to uh, you have to be given other stories and other uh, narrative tools to fully enter into the story he's trying to tell about himself. And, and he's mm. telling it in the voice of, of his 12-year-old self. So that that adds a whole nother mm-hmm. uh, element of complexity too, right? Uh, and I think he does a remarkable job of speaking speaking <laughs> in a in a mature way, but doing a convincing impression of a twelve year old uh, whose mind is not always as organized and linear uh, as as an adult, especially. A twelve-year-old who's trying to, you know, uh, come to terms with their own suffering. That's yeah. I, I like I like what you're saying about the that storytelling dance. 
because you have to, you know, lies with a dance like he's leading and you kind of have to be willing to take yeah, the steps right. with him, right? You can't make this, make his process something that it's not. And sometimes, it, you know, it, it it's like he... Sometimes he'll turn the page and, and he'll finish some story and then there'll be a proverb. And it's as if he thought of a new dance <laughs> step, so to speak. Like that story called to mind another proverb that he'd heard. And so, you know, Nyeri as a storyteller is putting these things together in a way that that offers a cohesive whole, right? And there's, you know, he's got all the elements that need to be there to, to yeah. make the story work. But the voice of the character is is a little bit sporadic, a little bit um, unstructured within the structure of the larger story. But you feel you feel that you're in the hands of someone who knows what they're doing, right? Mm-hmm. Like Nairi feels like somebody who knows how to to use that voice purposefully, and that he's not going to like as he seems as he's unspooling or unraveling, it's actually being raveled. Yeah, <laughs> it's coming sense. together. It feels like it's on. It's like a whole bunch of thoughts that are unspooling, like a firework <laughs> display of. It's the, say we're recording on the Fourth of July, a firework display of nice. memories, right? But what's actually happening is all those threads are coming together are being woven into a tapestry. So you're starting with them all and he's trying to figure out which, which threads go together and he's showing us the blue and he's showing us the red. But as he's going, he's actually weaving something that's, that's brilliant and beautiful. And so it's the opposite of what it feels like when you're in it because Nairi knows what he's doing, which is kind of an interesting experience. You don't, you don't get that a lot, especially in a novel, especially not like a Western novel. And the great thing is this is a book that's, that's sort of trading in Western tropes, but offering us an Eastern story, you know, with, with Eastern energy to it, uh, which could only be done by someone who's kind of intimately knows both. How, were you just going to say something? Yeah. I, I just like really like what you're saying because I think one of the more captivating aspects of the storytelling voice to me um, and just, this is just gripping to me is how he goes from, and like this kind of like zany seesaw motion between a like an informal voice when he's talking in the present, right? And about his life in Mrs. Miller's <laughs> class with Doug C. Ellie <laughs> J. Like I lo- I love that so much, especially like little moments that are so just so vital to the humor little moments like they like the the students keep asking him remember this I love this when the students keep asking him what about this person what about this person in the story and then he says they don't matter they're just there to people the story right the what the real important person is this one person but that's just what's going on in that like we're doing the same thing that the kids are trying to keep track of all the different students in the class. Right. So there's this really interesting kind of a meta commentary on storytelling (laughs) that's always taking place in this book. Um, Mm. And you can read it at face value or you can pay attention to those little things. Mm -hmm. Um, But anyway, which is why both adults and love it. Right. Um, And, but there's that, there's that like informal piece. And then when he goes into say like a Persian uh, myth, then his voice changes, right? And it becomes descriptive. It becomes melodious. The sentences get longer and more formalized uh, and and begin to feel like an ancient story, like you're reading A Thousand and One Arabian Nights. And then he'll switch again. And he's not just switching in time, but switching um, in style. And Mm -hmm. like you said, David, that it fits so beautifully because he's doing something very intentional. He's taking us in this, what feels it's not haphazard. It's, it's intentional, right? Like these, there's a certain way to weave a thread uh, into a rug to make it beautiful. And some of the threads get woven in this way and another in this way. And, and, and that, that and then together they make the beautiful tapestry. Um, and so that switching between voices, it's more like flowing than switching. And I think he does it like mm. perfectly. I think he nails it what every is, time. One of the things that's fascinating to me is the way it's like the act of storytelling is changing the narrator. Mm. So the character himself 
is in scenes sort of sporadically, right? And then you'll have like long sections where you're not getting another scene in the school or him fighting back against a bully or talking to his dad or hearing, seeing his grandparents again. It's, it's all these myths, but it's in the storytelling. It's in the recollection that the narrator seems to be discovering something about himself. And so that's very unusual. Usually we say, well, what's our protagonist? How does the action of the story change him? And who is he by the end of the story? But here it's like, the, the act of telling the story and remembering stories that don't belong to him, but he is preserving in a way or belong to him only in the sense that he is there to help preserve them. That is, that is changing him as this book goes along. And that's something and to look for. Well, and he's but honing his storytelling craft too, right? So he's, uh, he's, yeah, he's changing yeah. and developing as he's a person, sharper, yeah. but he's also looking at in moments consciously, uh, the craft of telling stories and both of those things are sort of uh, working and evolving together. Right. And every now and then he becomes self-aware about it and he's like, Oh, you know, when you tell a story, you're supposed to do it this way. And I know I'm not doing it or here, remember, this is how it works in a Persian story and I'm going to tell it in the Persian way. But at the same time, the the thing that I love about this book is how he, he can also manage to come and tell us, but just remember, you're not always the hero yeah. of every, every story, and you're not necessarily even the yeah. hero of your own story. And um, that's like that he can hold both those things in tension, that like he's telling these stories sometimes about himself, sometimes about his place in a larger story, and also say, but you can't, you can't always be the hero, and usually you're not. And those, like, those two things being held in tension are really interesting. Um, and I think that it's part of what kind of makes the experience for the reader... Um, universal hmm. i think there's like there's a universality to that like some, that's something yeah. we can all recognize uh, we can talk about the dangers of thinking that you're the hero of your story if you want but that's a different you know that's a different or just kind read of, this uh, book problem. and see it in yeah. action like yeah, it's just right. so profound and that i really like what you're saying david because he's continually having to flow from one world to the next like that's the nature of this child's life experience and Mm. when he gives us that really funny but heartbreaking emoji description of the story he's about (laughs) to tell right this is what happened smiley face this brownie face right and it's funny but it's also so heartbreaking and and he he's living that throughout the story that exact thing that's your that's your linear narrative that's what the story is about and he's going to go back and forth in time and space and in narrative voice uh, and between fiction and nonfiction in order to tell that story uh and um and you know epic has a long tradition of giving us the whole story at the beginning right it's called an epic prologue um, you could get it in every epic story and he gives it here right he's like this is what this is about this is what the book is about this is the story i'm going to tell and then he slow rolls it um with all of this you know absurdity and hilarity along with all of this pathos and grief and love uh and it's it brings you into it but one of the things that brings you it is exactly what i think david what you just said is that there's this continual movement back and forth between extremes really funny really sad all on the same page past future fiction nonfiction, and he'll even tell you the story i'm about to tell is only partly true and somehow i feel like i know what the true part is (laughs) and what the fiction is but i probably don't right Mm um it's just cool how he does it this is one of those books I wish I'd written. You know, every once in a while you have, you come across a book and you're like, if I could write a book, I would want it to be like this. And mm-hmm. I felt that way with just a handful. And this is one of them. Mm. Um, it's interesting because I, I was thinking about the different characters and how so far in the book we're kind of only getting them so sporadically that it's hard to really get to know them. And yet you feel like you know the the type, right? like the father or the grandfather or his grandmother. Um, But then you have our narrator himself. And in a way, he reveals so much about everything, but also, and is like very self-deprecating, like about his wardrobe and the way kids make fun of him and stuff like that. But he also kind of seems to be, in my opinion, sort of holding you a little bit at 
yeah a distance <clears throat> um when it comes to our protagonist what do we think this book is about because we get all the myths we get all the stuff we get the we get the idea of it's it's about how stories help us become who we are and all those things that we were just talking about but what is what is it you know the let's let's talk about like the hero's journey sort of thing that you can over like this just oversimplify it what is what is he trying to to do like what is his what is our narrator's goal and what is like what do you think he wants us most to focus on in terms of the evolution of this character? Because most of the action we're getting from him is him speaking about telling stories. I don't know. Maybe it's too soon to, <laughs> to tell, but uh, I think, yeah. Which is interesting, right? Because if we're a third of the way through and it's too in- too early to tell, that's a kind but, of an interesting. But I think that thing. at least on, on one level, uh, the, he wants to give us a way to to understand him and to see him as uh, like us, right? Human, uh, in the same way that we are human. Right? If it's a if it's a twelve year old boy standing up in front of a class of you know, tweens and preteens uh, who think he's weird because he has a weird name and because he uh, brings weird food for lunch and you know doesn't look like them and uh, he wants them to uh, he wants to give them a way to look past that uh, stuff I think that's what he's trying to do I'm really interested in the the question within the question that you gave um, that you offered which is if this is if we think about it in terms of like a hero's journey, right? I like that question a lot. First of all, he's very careful to not cast himself as the hero in his own story. And I think he keeps that pretty consistent throughout, but he doesn't deny ever that we are all the main character in our own story. Yeah, well, there's a difference between a hero and a protagonist for this sake of this conversation. Right. And I don't think he sees himself as the hero, but I think he's continually wrestling with the fact that he is the main character in his own life. And yet his life feels so completely out of control. Uh, And, and so that, or at least at this part of his life, right. The story that he's telling here and for so many reasons, like multiple losses, a complete change of culture. Um, He alludes to, we didn't read it in this section, but he alludes to a change in faith from his family, right? His mother working with the underground church, those kinds of things. Um, and so, um, and, and that he was a sensitive boy. Um, and those, I think he's continually wrestling with that, that kind of I, those identity questions. Um, so I think that this is a book about identity um, and that that's the core question. And, but then that becomes complicated because so many different threads, so to speak, to use the same metaphor, go into the formation of our identity. Um, and some of them are objective and some of them are subjective. And he seems very aware of that throughout the entire novel. And he's also very aware that he's telling us a story and that we only know what he's yeah. telling us. And mm-hmm. that this is a, and he's very clear in his interviews that this is a fictionalized memoir, right? And so the story that we're getting is not only a story that he's telling us, but a story he's telling us about the story <laughs> he's telling us, right? And and that's really interesting and complex, but it goes to that same question. Is there a core self and what is the nature of that core self and what forms the core self? I think this is a book about identity. And so in that sense, I think maybe most like a buildings roman, most like a coming of age story, but one that is his own, one that is of his own. Yeah, because it's not, you know, a. a a hero's journey kind of story usually unfolds in real time. And this is, this is Mm -hmm. just as much, you know, kind of memory novel uh, making sense of what has already happened uh, in his own past, in the past of his parents and ancestors uh, to make, to make him what he is and, and to bring him where he is. Um, And so, yeah, that's even I guess that is an element in every coming of age 
story, but it seems uh, more prominent here. It's not just the the coming of age, but the coming to terms with what brought you of age. <laughs> okay, so he said in an interview at one point, and we don't normally do this, but you know, why not? <laughs> why uh, not? He says. He says, the book sets out to convince the reader that, strictly speaking, all our memories are lies we tell ourselves. That is an interesting comment. Um, and I'm curious if, you know, it'd be an interesting one to discuss. I guess we could, you know, throw that back <laughs> at him at some point and ask him to... Yeah, that is one of the questions know, that, like that I, unpack it. I thought or that I constantly had for the author as I read was was really that like what what is it that or is it a particular thing that stories are concealing right we've talked about what stories reveal uh, but it definitely it's it's definitely the case that a major undercurrent at least in the book is what stories hide and conceal uh i think towards the end of this week's reading we we get the story about the the death of his great grandfather uh or grandfather i'm losing track uh the doctor yeah Hassan. or no the the yeah. auto the mechanic yeah, the who's mechanic. poisoned by the or doctor the yeah. auto parts. right thank yeah. you uh yeah. and right he talks about uh his great-grandmother telling these stories uh but but it being obvious in the telling that she is concealing more than she's revealing and uh which of course opens the door to asking that question about every single page of this book. And, and yeah, it's hard not to have that question turn on you then as you, as you read and contemplate it. So do you guys remember this was years and years ago, there was a book called, um, I think it was called a million little pieces or a million tiny pieces. Mm -hmm. It was like a, a memoir about an addict writing about the story right. of his addiction and his healing. And, um, and, um, I read the, I read the book, I liked it and it never occurred to me once to think that the whole story was true. Like it hmm. was a memoir and then I, but it was, it seemed very obvious to me in the story that it was fictionalized and that that fictionalized version was a more cohesive, in a sense, truer story than probably what actually happened. And then, then what happened with this author, and I don't remember his name, but James, he, James Frey. Thank you. Um, I was going to say, I think it was James something. Um, <laughs> Is he he went on Oprah and then she like blindsided him on the air well, with like all of this evidence, right? That 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 he hadn't actually been in rehab and he didn't know the girl he told this story about and all of these these she just exposed and demolished him publicly. Um and he didn't know it was coming. And it was one of the most watched Oprah episodes ever. And um I I remember watching that or reading. I never watched the Oprah episode. I don't, I don't like public shaming ever. Um, but I, I remember reading about it and being like, Oh, I read that book. I liked it. I thought it was good. And it never even occurred to me that it was, it had to be a hundred percent true for it to be a st yeah. good story. Right. And, um, because sometimes like, and this is something Tolkien says, right. This is because there's all of this meta narrative within this story. This is the, the title is taken from Lord of the Rings. And one of the things that Tolkien builds his entire career and reputation on is this idea that there is a truer story that goes deeper than facts, that there is a deep comedy, that there is this, there's, there's this story, this narrative, this true story that's woven into all stories that it is our job as humans to find a meaning making narrative uh within the stories of our lives and the stories of terrible things that happen right he calls it you catastrophe um like the good sadness the good sadness the good catastrophe that happens in our lives that then becomes part of the meaning making salvation of our souls um and and I think that Daniel Nayeri buys into that and has given us a story that is an 
objective correlative to that, right? Mm-hmm. Like this is the truer story mm-hmm. and make of that what you will and let it be complicated. Here you go. We have this story in our family that this book makes me think about all the time. And the story is that my great, my great, great grandfather, I think, came to the United States around like, I don't know, 1910, 1915 from what I guess is now Slovenia. He was from a small village in what is now Slovenia. So I guess, what is that? Yugoslavia at the time or something like that. Um, and he came to America and changed his name to Kern. So our family's name was not original. Last name was not originally Kern. And there's all these stories about why he came to America in the first place. And why did he change his name to Kern? And his name originally was, was actually, I think it was Polak, P-O-L-A-K. That's why. Which at the time, you know, if you're a Polish, a Pol in New York in like 1910, there was, you get persecuted and there are all kinds of things like that. So the stories are either he came to America because he was running from the law, like he committed some kind of crime in Slovenia and escaped into America, or he um, came chasing after a woman. And in either case, he changed his name, one, because he was trying to hide or because the the story that gets most told by my aunts and uncles and stuff that I've heard the most is that the woman he wanted to marry wouldn't marry <laughs> him with the name Polak. So he changed it to Kern. And there was like a jazz musician, I think Jerome Kern. And then there was also like a, a college football coach named Ed Kern, something like that. I don't know if all the dates on those work out, but that's the stories that have been passed on. Right. And I don't know the actual truth. I don't know if anybody does. The reality is he probably came over just to get more opportunity and, changed his name because Polak was Kern was easy to spell or something. People was less confusing. Like so many people did, but the stories have gotten passed on. And I, and I, there's a couple different stories like that in our family that I don't know the whole truth on, but the story becomes the stories themselves start to kind of become defining for your family and for your history. And your part in that story is also defined by the stories that get passed on to you. And so I sometimes wonder, well, do I need to, should I, should I try to figure out the truth of these stories? And I could, you know, as I've gotten, when I was younger, I was like, I really want to know the actual truth. I want to know like the history of the family. Right. And now I kind of want to know the myths of our family. Right. And that's so much more compelling and interesting to me because the myths actually tell us more about who we are than the facts of what somebody lived like in 1910. The facts of what somebody lived like in 1910 tell us what it was like to be like in 19, what it was like to be alive in 1910 but it doesn't help tell me who our family is Mm -hmm. the myths that we have told told, that we have passed on with their half truths are more important to who we are as people and those are what and so it's more important that i pass those on to my kids than the way he lived in an apartment in whatever city in milwaukee in 1917 right that stuff's cool but that's like cultural artifact. That's not who we are as people, as a family. So this book has made me think about that. Like we've got two or three stories like that, that are like almost too <laughs> miraculous to really be true. But, but supposedly there's, there's enough truth in there to be worth passing on. Right. And the gray area is sort of what ends up defining our people, mm-hmm. whether it's a family or whether it's a culture, you know, we're recording on July 4th, right? Paul Revere's ride. Who knows? I don't know. Like some of these stories that we, that are myths that have made America are more important than the truth that became the myth. Right. That's right. And like, yeah. uh, Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, um, I think it's, it's Alan Tate or maybe uh, his wife, Caroline Gordon says that writers are writers job. The job of a writer is to impose form on formless matter, right? Which is, a divine, mm. a divine kind of action. Uh, Tolkien talks about this too. He calls it subcreation, right? Where you imitate imitate God's creative That's act right. by ordering chaos. And maybe you could just substitute the word storyteller for writer. Right? That uh, we tell stories to form the the chaos of maybe what maybe what actually happened historically speaking, uh, and bring it into line with uh, how do you put it the the greater truth. So that uh, we can see how what has happened to us lines up with 
what is most ultimately true. I think that's right. Mm. Although I, I think I would quibble with impose and maybe oh, yeah, say okay. reveal, right? That there, yeah, like that, that there, there is inherently a, a meaning and the storyteller reveals it. The storyteller says, this is what it was all for. This yeah. is what it was leading towards. And I, I think that, that we, that Daniel Nayeri takes that vocation that you just described mm. of a storyteller very seriously. And I love the connection with Shahrazadi so much because Shahrazadi told stories to the king to save her own life. And in so doing, she created an entire culture. Mm. And, and that's what storytelling has the capacity for, as you just alluded to, David, um, that in telling a story, we like Homer does the same thing, right? In in telling the story of one hero, uh, and 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 that in telling the story of Achilles and the love and grief, the rage of Achilles, in so doing, Homer created and and encapsulated, enacted an entire culture that now we hmm. have access to because somebody <laughs> bothered to write it down. Yeah, the cultures, the, the cultures are defined by the stories we tell. That's right. The interior culture, the culture of a soul, certainly. And mm -hmm. then, but zooming out from just the psychological meaning, we also have a cultural meaning and that, that is an entire society. And then zooming out mm -hmm. from that, we have kind of a cosmic layer of meaning um, that, that Nayeri doesn't neglect. But one of the stories he's telling here is a collision of cultures in one soul. And the mm -hmm. complexity of that, uh, that, that isn't just his own, but in a way he's speaking for refugee culture that's taking place all over the world right now and always has. There's always been displaced and exiled people who have to reckon with the formation of the collision of cultures. Um, and, and he gives us that, and he speaks most lovingly about his former, his lost culture. Um, mm -hmm. but we're not all the way through the book yet. Right. I was, I was thinking while reading about how, if we want to, like, if you want to be hospitable, hmm. you know, Zinnia, right. If you want to be, if you want That's to right. or show that here, right. The Persian yeah, yeah. hospitality. Yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, 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 exactly. Then you have to, mm -hmm. you have to hear the stories of the people that come to you. Because you can't understand who they are unless you know what their stories are. You can't just, you know, and it's in every dish. Like I think this is one of the reasons maybe why Daniel Nairi loves food so much, and like he spent his life working in it, is because dish, like a dish, tells the story yeah. of the people who invented it and passed it on. Because for a dish to be eaten a thousand years later, it has to have been carefully created, um, slowly evolved, and then, you know, preserved. It's like in America, we have this whole tradition now in the South, in particular, of seed sa seed saving, you know, where the, we have the grains that were like 100 years old and they've been, the grains have been, you know, they're technically like extinct, like you'd never be able to get them in a store now. Uh, but you pass on the seeds. And, I, and when you pass on that seed, you're passing on a story as well. Uh, Austin Cleon, who's got a great newsletter, he's a writer about creativity. He actually wrote today on the 4th of July about um, yeah. Travels with Charlie. Uh, Steinbeck's book about going all across America. And he points out that um, a couple of years ago, the New York Times wrote this, this expose or whatever word you want to call it about how much Steinbeck made up about his trip in that book. And he writes that, um, he writes, quote, whether it's fact or fiction doesn't bother me personally, especially now that I've read its partial inspiration, Don Quixote, which is a book about enchantments and deceptions and how you can will yourself into adventure. There's a spirit to the book that can't be denied. And, and he says <laughs> the writing is delicious. I love that he adds that bit there. And he talks about how he like talks how Steinbeck himself writes about how hard it is to capture a people on one trip and how he says how subjective one's impression of a place is. And it's, it's interesting to me that these stories get passed on, but part of what makes them rich is that as you encounter them, your experience with the story is a bit subjective. And so a culture is built on some 
the snowball effect of subjective experiences with a story building on one another and building on one another and building on one another. And like every generation adds something to that snowball or that rug or whatever you want to do. And that that's what kind of makes it beautiful. And so it doesn't really matter what it started with as much. I mean, it matters where it started, but you know, over time, the stories take on a, a new like layers of meaning, which I think is, is, and that those layers of meaning yeah. are culture. Here, <laughs> of my thought. I love um, all of the descriptions of food in this book. Oh, me too. I I love it. I just kind of read one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, this is about Aziz and the after after the absolutely breathtaking <laughs> description of the saffron fields. Oh, so it's just so good. Um. And this is on and page. food being contracted. Yeah, with poison is really important. So good, very, very important, right? Mithridates, that whole story about Mithridates and the eating of the poison and how that continues to come back. Um, on page fifty-four, it says, "Aziz ran across the orchard to the bonfire. The old cook got his kiss on the cheek from the princess." waited for her to leave and began barking orders. The whole house prepared for the feast, even Aziz. Her job was to fill two bowls with fresh yogurt from the sacks hanging in the basement larder where the floor was packed dirt and where the old cook kept his pickling jars. Soon the dinner carpet was full with trays of kebab, grilled onions and tomatoes, platters of fresh chives, green and purple basil, cilantro, radishes and dill. The mountains of steaming basmati rice were capped with drizzles of saffron butter. A stew of chickpea, lamb, crispy shallots, and fresh mint was the Khan's favorite. Aziz always sat beside him and made sure his plate never wanted for anything. He did not talk much, but held his wife's hand as much as possible. The next several sentences are great too, but just that description <laughs> just makes me want to eat and cook. Sean, do you have any favorite food uh, passages? There are there are a couple of great ones. One one that I, really struck me is very brief. Uh, there was, I mean, we get a few of the the meals that Aziz made for her husband, uh, but on the day that he has his fateful encounter with the doctor, he sets the scene by mentioning almost in passing uh, that. On this particular day, she made a dish of chicken stewed with plums. And it's just such a striking dish. It sounds so, uh, and it's very uh, un-Western un to mix <laughs> those kinds of ingredients. Uh, we don't usually do fruit and chicken, maybe oranges, I guess. But uh, like there was this, there was this Chinese restaurant. Uh, in the town where I grew up that had this strawberry chicken dish that was so good, but so bizarre uh, and and unusual. And uh, so there's this sweet, you know, savory dish that's uh, introduced here as a kind of throwaway. Uh, and then this terrible scene that unfolds after. Uh, and he just he just drops the reference to this beautiful, meal we've already gotten other descriptions of the way she lovingly prepares this food and brings it to her husband uh and uh the the particular identity of the dish just sort of crowns the uh the lovely happy image that is about to be destroyed uh and uh, i love the way he, he's able to do that so economically with something as uh you know sublime as chicken and plums have you um ever cooked out of uh, otolenge's cookbooks no no his jerusalem cookbook is one of my favorites and he's got lots of dishes in there that involve like chicken with cardamom and yeah, some I, kind of i have the jerusalem cookbook on my shelf and i have never uh never never cooked anything okay out of it. go in the middle Cardamom, the cardamom chicken is okay. Is bananas? It's one of my favorite things to, to cook. It's not actually bananas. It's cardamom chicken, but banana pudding. So you don't um, even, sometimes that's they don't only even at say the, the uh, that's only the big. That's right. Well. That's right. 
Yeah. <laughs> okay, I want to read one food passage here that's about the uh, one of my favorite parts with the pastry chef, because this is Daniel Nairi's, he was a pastry chef. I guess he kind of still is. Um, what is it? The yes. Abbas, the, he wants to marry the girl, but he doesn't think he's going to be allowed to. So he pours himself into his pastry craft. He races time. He races the courtship of Tamar to what's his name. He sculpts chickpea cookies with a steady hand. They are each individually perfect. None crumble. He takes a stall in the real alcove of the bazaar and sells them. He makes saffron rice pudding, stirring patiently, pulling the pot from the fire with a troubadour's timing. It is a perfect sunrise yellow. He layers his baklava generously with walnuts and cardamom. His almond cakes are subtle, and the cherry puree on top is joyous, bold, even a little wanton. Soon, no one remembers Abbas the greengrocer's errand boy, only Abbas the master baker of all Isfahan. His first large order is from a governor who wants a thousand cream puffs for the <laughs> wedding of his daughter, Tamar. Abbas dies here. His heart crumbles into chickpea flour. <laughs> so good and so sad so good then the wet the description of the wedding and how like oh, his yeah. grief is in the cream puffs and then when they eat it oh, it's yeah, as yeah. light as a shroud <laughs> oh, i feel like that's a way that how do you think only someone that? who is cooked yeah with their whole soul could put into words right yeah so uh after he came on the most recent season of Withy Wendell, Nairi, I asked him to send us one of his favorite recipes. So we posted on the Withy Wendell Substack his version of rice pudding, which he said, because he said it's one of his favorite things to make. So sometime during the making of, during the recording of these episodes, I'm going to make this rice pudding. Because mm. fun fact, rice pudding is my favorite dessert, and there we go. I would ask for it Damn. for my birthday. I'm going to do that too. We should all just make it. Okay, noted. <laughs> make rice puddings, Yeah. Sean, if we have Daniel on, you will officially not be I'm, the person with the most I'm cooking ready. training anymore. I, I like just official want to meet cooking this guy and give him a hug and uh, eat his food. And man, <laughs> um, all right, let's let's wrap this up. Um, it is the Fourth of July, and we've all got things to to do. I, I assume, um, Heidi, what are you are you cooking anything for the Fourth of July? Speaking of cooking. I'm cooking nothing and I'm actually disappointed. We're going to my in-laws, and I think she's trying to be nice and. Oh yeah, she's just lovely, and so it's like, what can I bring? My kids are out of town; they're at mm. they're at camp this week, and so it's just uh, Scott and I yeah. at home for a whole week. That must be it's, weird. What's that like? Oh my gosh, man! Empty <laughs> nesting is going to be the promised land. Like I believe I you. <laughs> love You're yes, you are so many years closer than we are. Yes, it's true. And I... Sean's so know, many man. years from me because he is a I also feel like old. I'm wandering oh, yeah. around walking into walls a little bit because I don't have oh, to yeah. drive anywhere, anyone anywhere, cook for it. anybody. Like, I don't have yeah, to. Right, right, like, right. I get to, you know? And yeah. um, so anyway, my mother-in-law kindly was like, don't bring anything. We got it. And now I'm like <laughs> really disappointed because I... Always and see, this is the reason yeah. why empty nesting is both the best and the worst because I always make a red, white, and blue breakfast on Fourth of July. Mm. But both Scott and I are of intermittent fasting, and <laughs> so I have nobody to make a red, white, and blue breakfast for. <laughs> so that's sad. But also, I don't go. have you to make a red, taken... white, and blue breakfast, so I don't know what to think. I don't know what to feel. I need mm. to write a book yeah, about it could, with uh, all the complexity. Totally embrace it and start you cooking should, for yeah. your dog or something. I know. I like, don't know what to do with my hands. But I also have weeded a lot. And anyway, I'm having the best time. But all, all I say, we're going to my in-laws and then nice. we're going to go watch fireworks with some friends. Just nice. like without kids. So weird. What do oh, you man. And you get to find out if your puppy likes fireworks. Yes. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, she will. She will. Because <laughs> she's we're gonna speaking stay it into existence. Yeah, <laughs> what are y'all cooking and doing on America's birthday? David, John, you go oh, first. Okay, we you go first. Uh, we're also going to my in-laws, uh, but we are we are bringing some food. Heather, Heather's baking some desserts. I think there's a it's like a puff pastry, cream cheese, mm. cherry galette sort of thing. Is cream as light as a shroud. Maybe not. Maybe not. She wasn't. Uh, Maybe she not wasn't, enough sadness. Yeah, she in wasn't it. losing the love of her life as she made it. Uh, Fair. It, it does take some deep. Yeah, uh, yeah you got to wring the, you know. the salty tears out. Uh, yeah, that's right. I I made a big pot of um, 
collard greens and turnip greens. Kaneka sausage. Oh, yum. That yeah. sounds good. Oh, yeah. nice. David? Well, uh, my in-laws, <laughs> uh, in-laws, they, they came in-law over for day. lunch before <laughs> this because Bethany's aunt and uncle are in town. So I just made chicken salad. And then, mm. um, which I tried a few new things, Sean. Yeah. It's pretty good. Turned out we pretty good. We made chicken salad um, yesterday. I make chicken salad all the time in the summer. It's just because I'm in yeah. the garden all day that I'm like, okay. oh, let's make chicken oh, salad yeah. again. How do you cook your chicken for chicken salad? Do you like? Do you just use a rotisserie? Do you just do you, do you have opinions on this? Is we there, use people the can leave the podcast now. <laughs> this is the meat, oh. though. You use what? The sous vide. Oh yeah. Okay. I mean that's a that's a foolproof way to do it. I like that. Uh, I usually when I'm thinking when I'm planning ahead, that's nice. But <laughs> uh, rotisserie rotisserie chicken is good. We'll do that. Uh, sometimes I'll just I just cook I like saute or pan pan fry chicken breasts and I'll sear mm-hmm. them sear them hot and then turn the heat low and just throw you know like a half a stick of butter in there and it just sort of uh, simmers and, and gets real tender. We'll cover it up. Uh, we so made, today I go ahead. No, I was going to say we made yesterday we we did that and uh, we made tzatziki chicken salad. And oh, it was, oh, nice! It was so amazing. good. Yeah, it was really great. Sometimes I'll add a little yogurt Fresh or sour dill cream, and lemon, that's cucumber. Such a good idea. Mm, yeah, I love that. Yeah. yeah, lots of dill, and I pour like you have to have some acid, right? So yeah, I pour a right. little, get, get that lemon, get a little vinegar. Yeah, yeah. Or then like I'll use the, I'll just use the, like I'll pour dill juice from dill Pickle juice. Yeah. Right in there. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Um. So today I poached chicken breast. Ah. In, oh, I've never like, done that before in my whole life. In so you use a two to one water to chicken ratio, uh-huh, and it uh-huh. comes out a nice texture and you can kind of not have to pay attention to it once. So what you do is you let it, it comes to a boil. Once it's kind of coming to like a low simmer, you, I just flip all the chicken over and then yeah. I cover it and turn the heat off and let it sit for like 10 minutes. And then it's like, if you don't let it sit too long you don't want to let it sit in water too long. But the thing that was interesting is I salted it like I, like I would pasta. Yeah. Salted the water. And it actually turned out really good because the chicken was like the right amount of salt and it's easier, you know, it's just easy to, cut it doesn't get that you know when you sometimes cook a chicken breast in a pan it can get oh, that like, rubbery yeah yeah i'm very yeah. intimidated by poaching because i once tried to poach <laughs> eggs and they failed so badly you that poached I just eggs like, <laughs> once and you've never gone back <laughs> I mean. well no i've tried to poach eggs a few times and they failed and now i just like whenever something's like poached something i'm like nope nope <laughs> <laughs> but i'm gonna try again i'm inspired i'm i can do it Listen, we poached should okay. We have, we're gonna person. poach eggs when we, when uh, what is it? August yeah, in August, yeah, at our, at our Airbnb. In our, mm-hmm. Yep, we're gonna poach some eggs. We're gonna get you over this. Speaking pears, of which, I also would like. I have poached oh, pears for dessert. That is a yeah, lot. I have yep. poached. When we get together, well we got to make rice pudding. Let's make okay. Daniel Ayres yeah. rice pudding like in August pudding. together. I love oh, it. bread pudding's bread amazing pudding. too. Let's yeah. do both. Let's do bread pudding and rice pudding. Why not? But not a nana pudding. But we can do that too. You can't, you know, Nana, that's pretty delicious. Ain't nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Um, do you think, how many people are still listening, do you think? Wow, for, all of them. Six? Well, it's not live, so it doesn't really matter, you know. Mom, are you there? Forgive us. We got sidetracked. But it's Daniel Nayeri's fault because he just awakens the longing for the good life. Even right. in his descriptions of the hard life. That's And we, have, yeah. we did get to a point, maybe it was around page 100, where... Right, he's been talking about how Persian stories are always sad stories, uh, but that finally he reveals this is not a Persian story, hmm. That's and right. uh, that gave me a little bit to to cling to, like the you know the bottom of an onion lifted me up to heaven. So hopefully, uh, <laughs> I'm I'm in for the ride. I'm loving this book, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, I'm was still that a Brothers K reference there? Third yeah. of the way in there. Oh yeah, yeah. every time, which yeah. is quoted in the epigram. That's right. Of this hey. book. Yep. Hey. Okay, well, oh. we're going to wrap this up. We're going to get to our 4th of July. So everybody's listening is like July. It's like July 10th. 11th probably. or whatever. Yeah. 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 So yeah. They, they, we yeah. had the leftover ribs three days ago. Yeah. yeah. Tell, oh, us, tell us what you cook for the 4th of <laughs> yeah, July. Exactly. Yeah. That's right. Oh, I forgot to say, we're going to a baseball game tonight. Oh, oh hey. So I'm taking, we're taking the kids to a baseball That's game. Awesome. Along it's with like American. The, the Cersei. They get like a booth. Nice. And so we're going to have like, they're going to have... Probably the kids will be able to eat as many hot dogs as they want, and it'll be great. 
There was lots of funnel cake conversation happening. Candy, hot dogs, fireworks. I have a friend whose birthday is the 4th of July and she was told her whole life. She was like in high school before she knew that the fireworks were not for her. (laughs) That's amazing. You could write a book and could be like this one. Right. I've got lots of thoughts about that. Yeah. Uh, we'll just save America. those for another day. Yeah. yeah. Hey, what's your friend's name? America. Her name is her name is Tallene. Oh, that would have been amazing if her name was actually America. <laughs> Happy birthday, America, and Tallene, and anybody else who's born on July Fourth. That's, yeah, right. that's right. All right. Well, that's it. That's all we're going to leave now. So for Heidi White, for Sean Johnson, I'm David Kern. Till next time, happy reading and belated happy Independence Day. Mm-hmm.